Cluster B personality disorders are characterized by dramatic, overly emotional, and unpredictable thoughts and behavior. From Ars Longa Media, this is Cluster B, scientifically informed, expert insights into the four Cluster B personality types, antisocial, borderline, narcissistic, and histrionic personality disorder. Here's today's host, Dr. Todd Grande. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks if I can review a presentation example looking at borderline personality disorder. So a presentation example is also called presentation analysis, a case analysis, or a case study. This is a situation where a clinician like a mental health counselor wants to report about a particular case. So they obtain consent from their client. Identifying information is changed, like the client's name and some other information. But the idea is the clinical essence behind the presentation remains the same or similar. It's used for training, other types of education, conferences, and sometimes these case studies are published. The presentation example I'll be reviewing today did come from an article, so it was published. I'll put the reference to this article in the description for this video. So I want to take a look here at borderline personality disorder because that's the diagnosis that was made in this particular case study, we see that borderline personality disorder, BPD, is a cluster B personality disorder. So it's in the same cluster as antisocial, narcissistic, and histrionic. So among other things, this means that when we see BPD, we know that comorbidity with those other disorders is somewhat likely. So we see that when somebody does have BPD, they're at increased risk to have one or more of the other cluster B personality disorders. So there are nine symptom criteria in the definition for borderline personality disorder. We see frantic efforts to avoid abandonment, so really a fear of abandonment. We see an unstable relationship pattern. So an individual with BPD tends to idealize another individual like a romantic partner. Then they tend to devalue that partner. We call this the love-hate cycle. We see identity disturbance. So this would be a difficulty with self-image. Impulsivity in at least two areas that could cause self-damage. Suicidal behavior. Affective instability, sometimes called emotional dysregulation. A chronic feeling of emptiness. Inappropriate or intense anger or difficulty controlling anger. And paranoid ideation or severe dissociation. So now looking at this particular case, we see this as an interesting case because the client, who I will call Nancy, was treated by a college counseling center. So the case study was not only to examine this particular presentation, but to do so in light of some of the difficulties that college counseling centers have. Historically, these types of counseling centers are not always well equipped to deal with personality disorders and other mental disorders that are considered severe, like schizophrenia or bipolar disorder, for example. This particular college was a small private Catholic college, and all the students were female. So this client, again, I'll call her Nancy, is 19 years old. She's a Caucasian first-year student at the college. She identifies as lesbian. Nancy was referred to treatment by one of the resident assistants, so these people that help out in the dorms. They're also called RAs. However, she was also referred by the student services director, so she attracted attention from a few different people in terms of her behavior. And again, these people directed her to receive counseling. This was her first time in therapy. From what I understand from later in the article, it appears as though Nancy would not sign a release, or maybe she was not asked to sign a release, 
so that the counseling staff could talk to the college administration and the RAs. This becomes important later on. Nancy originally presented to the therapist with obsessive thoughts and intense feelings of anxiety over her girlfriend. I'll refer to this girlfriend as Marcia. So Nancy and Marcia had a contentious relationship and argued constantly. And apparently these arguments became quite heated. Nancy also reported having emotional outbursts, relational difficulties with other people on campus, and uncontrollable rage. She made it clear in the beginning of therapy that she was not interested in moving past what had occurred, rather in learning techniques to win Marcia back. Her goal was to change so that Marcia would love her again and they could be together romantically. The therapist asked Nancy if Nancy would consider adding gaining insight to the list of goals, as Nancy was expressing a desire to continue a relationship that appeared to have a great deal of arguing in it. Nancy agreed to add insight as a goal and indicated that she had a pattern of unhealthy romantic relationships in the past. So she acknowledged that that could be a problem that she was dealing with here as she started therapy. Looking at Nancy's history, she grew up in a small town that was just a few hours away from the college. Her parents were married, and they had been married since she was born. She had no brothers or sisters. She had never lived on her own before being admitted to the college. Nancy's parents were wealthy and apparently gave Nancy whatever she wanted, including extravagant gifts. Nancy reported that although her parents were kind in terms of giving her material goods, she felt like they were emotionally distant and that they did not genuinely love her. In therapy, Nancy didn't talk about her relationship with her father much. She did indicate that she thought the relationship was good and positive. She says that she identified more with her father than with her mother, as her father played sports together with her when she was younger. However, outside of sports, her father was really not a significant part of her life. The therapist noted that Nancy appeared to rely heavily on the mother's advice and had difficulty making her own decisions. The therapist noted that Nancy appeared to rely heavily on the mother's advice and that Nancy had difficulty making her own decisions. In terms of how the parents worked together to raise Nancy, Nancy felt like they were inconsistent with discipline. Some offenses would be ignored altogether, but later on the same offense would be punished. Nancy was eventually able to manipulate her parents because of this inconsistent parenting style and avoid accountability for her actions. Nancy reported that her adolescence was tumultuous, and she indicated that she had difficulty coming out as a lesbian during her sophomore year of high school. She had a history of self-harm. She reported bisexual promiscuity, breaking her parents' rules frequently, and consuming alcohol, which of course was illegal as she was underage. Nancy indicated that her parents were unaware of her sexual identity, but Nancy believed that they suspected. Nancy denied any type of abuse when she was a child. Nancy's parents supported her financially, including paying the college tuition, which apparently was quite high. It was a substantial amount of tuition. Nancy seemed unsure about being in college. She had ambivalence, so strong feelings both ways. She wanted to be there in some ways, but didn't want to be there in others. So before I get into the diagnosis and the course of treatment in this case study, just a note about the therapist and her supervisor. The therapist was new to the field. She was a doctoral student, but she was under the supervision of somebody who had a good deal of experience. Her theoretical orientation was object relations, and her supervisor's theoretical orientation involved focusing on meaning and perspective in relationships. 
So from this article, I really couldn't get a good idea about the actual theoretical orientations of this therapist and the supervisor. They were really just described briefly, and I don't think really added a lot of value to the article. The supervisor assigned the diagnosis of BPD to Nancy, indicating that Nancy met eight of the nine symptom criteria for the disorder. Frantic efforts to avoid abandonment. The supervisor used Nancy's refusal to be alone as evidence that she met this criterion. There was other evidence that supported the symptom criteria as well, though. Nancy visited the rooms of other students in the middle of the night and actively sought to date other women, even though she was trying to reconcile with Marcia. We see the unstable relationship pattern here. Nancy had indicated she had a long history of unhealthy and unstable relationships. She tended to think of other people as good or bad. This is known as splitting. This is fairly common with the unstable relationship pattern symptom criterion. She also had affective instability, so emotional dysregulation, intense anger, impulsivity, and had made suicidal threats. Now, this, of course, only represents six of the symptoms. The article doesn't say which other two symptoms were thought of as met. The only other three available, of course, were identity disturbance, chronic feelings of emptiness, and paranoia. It would have been helpful if they just listed which symptom criteria were met clearly and which one they didn't think was met, but that wasn't the case here in this article. Now, I could take a guess as to which one wasn't met, but when you look at these three symptom criteria, they're often tied pretty closely to the frantic efforts to avoid abandonment. So if we see that fear of abandonment, we tend to see identity disturbance, the chronic feeling of emptiness, and paranoia. So it's really hard to know. It might have been that she actually met all nine of the symptom criteria, and the supervisor just didn't really need to get that last criteria because he had eight that were met, or didn't understand one or more of the criteria. Now, this really wouldn't be surprising. Again, Counseling Center therapists typically don't have a lot of experience with personality disorders. Hi there. I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor, so while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who've overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection and interview top thought leaders, game changers and survivors. It is from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover and how to be brave. The therapist conceptualized Nancy's psychopathology as starting with an inconsistent relationship with her mother. This is fairly consistent with object relations. The relationship moved between disengaged and enmeshed, which left Nancy wanting care from others, but at the same time made her sensitive 
to rejection and loneliness. Nancy had a low level of trust for other people, which was noticeable when others would try to validate Nancy's feelings. When the therapist or other staff members would offer a nurturing response to Nancy, she would be suspicious of them, and sometimes she would have an anger outburst directed toward them. Now, looking at the course of treatment, Nancy started treatment about one week after the relationship ended with Marcia, and the therapeutic relationship went on for about three months. So, kind of in light of the severity we typically see with BPD, this was a short duration of treatment. But as we see, this wasn't the therapist's fault. The treatment terminated because of the actions of Nancy, not the therapist. Just about every counseling session became a crisis management session. There was little time to work on developing insight, which of course is understandable if you have somebody in front of you and they're in the middle of a crisis. That tends to be what is discussed, not other long-term goals. The therapist mixed in some cognitive behavioral techniques in an effort to reduce the emotional dysregulation. The therapeutic alliance never really fully formed in this case, but it did improve a little over the course of treatment. The therapist used emotional validation to explore the obsessive thoughts that Nancy had about Marcia. The emotional validation, of course, was met with suspicion, but there was some progress in terms of the obsessive thoughts. There was this interesting parallel that the therapist drew here in this situation. Nancy was attempting to win Marcia back by doing favors for Marcia, like buying her gifts, offering her transportation, doing her homework. The therapist pointed out that this behavior was similar to what Nancy's mother did for her. Nancy's mother tried to buy affection from Nancy, and Nancy was trying to buy affection from Marcia. So the therapy wasn't progressing great, but there were a few kind of key moments. But after this, the situation tended to go downhill. One of the resident assistants started reporting problems with Nancy, and they contacted the counseling center. Evidently, there was a fight between Nancy and Marcia. Nancy characterized this as a little fight, but the RAs indicated that it involved throwing objects at one another, yelling and screaming, and assaulting people who tried to stop the fight. Another student reported that she was having flashbacks because Nancy was standing outside of Marcia's room at night and screaming. The college put a no-contact order in place between Nancy and Marcia, but this only exacerbated Nancy's behavior. The weak therapeutic alliance that formed fell apart, although Nancy did continue to come to counseling. The therapist and her supervisor came up with a theory that all the attention that the RAs and other staff were giving to Nancy were giving Nancy a sense of power, and this power could be used to attract the attention of Marcia. So there was this no-contact order, but Nancy could be dramatic and attract all kinds of attention, and word of this could get back to Marcia. That was really the theory that the supervisor and the therapist had. Now, after this report from the RA, we see that Nancy became intoxicated and went back to her dorm room where she became aggressive. Another student tried to find out what was going on, and Nancy physically attacked her. The student decided not to file any type of criminal charges. Nancy indicated that she had a plastic knife in her room, and she threatened to commit suicide and then ran back to her room. The student services director had to stay at the college overnight in an effort to protect Nancy from herself. As a result of this last incident, and of course the other incidents that occurred before, Nancy was expelled from the college. But a week later, she arrived at her counseling session at the regularly scheduled time. She told the therapist that her mother had a meeting with the dean and everything was worked out. It appeared as though the mother was trying to buy Nancy 
out of trouble again, and not acknowledge the problematic behavior that Nancy was displaying. Shortly after, Nancy stopped attending counseling sessions, even though they had been required as a condition for her readmission into the college. So it would appear that the mother's efforts to fix things for Nancy were successful, at least in terms of enabling Nancy to avoid accepting responsibility for her actions. So my thoughts with this case. Well, the first thing that really strikes me here is the physical violence. This should have never been tolerated, whether people want to file charges or not. Second, if a college decides to kick somebody out, they really need to stand behind that decision and not go back and change that decision because somebody throws money at them. I can understand changing a decision if new evidence was introduced, but that's not what happened here, right? This was because the mother came and essentially complained to the dean, and then maybe the college felt intimidated or whatever, but they let Nancy back in. On top of this, they allowed her to stop seeing the therapist at the counseling center, and apparently there was no consequences for that either. So in terms of the treatment of Nancy, Nancy's presentation really just seemed to overwhelm the staff at this counseling center. They simply were not set up for the expressions of symptoms that we see here. Nancy was extremely disruptive to other students at the college, to the point where she was attracting complaints frequently, and of course there was that physical violence I talked about before. She really needed to be referred to an outside counseling center, a mental health treatment facility that was set up for this type of disorder. So really, she needed to be working with counselors that had more experience with borderline personality disorder. I think the accountability piece is crucial as well. And again, it seems like nobody was really able or willing to hold Nancy accountable, not just at the college, but in her history as well. So this was just a problem for Nancy for a long period of time. I mentioned before that Nancy did not appear to sign a release so that the counseling staff could talk to the RAs and other people in the administration. I don't know how much they fought to get this release, but as it was noted in the article, it would have been really helpful to have that. The counseling staff could have coordinated their efforts with the RAs, and that may have helped to set clearer boundaries for Nancy. Overall, the therapy was regarded as unsuccessful, and I would tend to agree with that in terms of what we saw here with an outcome. But the duration of the treatment was only for three months, and there were a lot of crises to deal with, so this isn't really surprising. I think this outcome was really the outcome that I would have expected, probably more or less from the beginning. We also don't know exactly everything that the therapist did. There's only so much that can be really entered into a case report like this. So without knowing the entire history and everything that they did, it's really hard to know what could have been done differently. It's really hard to offer any type of meaningful criticism when you're just looking at a part of what occurred. I thought overall the therapist did make some clever observations and attempted some well-thought-out interventions as well. I think she just really needed more time with this client and more connectivity, again, to the other people at the college. I think perhaps the largest factor, though, would be more experience specifically with borderline personality disorder. Another thing I find interesting about this case is that the diagnosis moved right to BPD, which I think makes sense but there was really no discussion about other possible comorbid diagnoses. For example, what about antisocial personality disorder? It appears from this case report anyway that Nancy had repeated unlawful behaviors. We saw physical violence. We saw the drinking. We see impulsivity, aggressiveness, the physical fights. We see a reckless regard for safety and irresponsibility. So 
there seemed to be several criteria met for antisocial personality disorder, but again, that was never discussed at all. And the issue of psychopathy in general wasn't discussed either. So this is really a good example of, again, how experience with personality disorders can be useful when treating personality disorders. We know that comorbidity is high with borderline, including with other personality disorders. I mentioned that before. And yet we see antisocial personality disorder not even really discussed or considered, as far as we know, at least from the case report. So that's a little worrisome. Also, I wonder if substance use disorder was considered as a possible diagnosis. I think just in general, a lot of other comorbidities should have been discussed in this case report. And some of this could have been just because they're trying to fit a lot of information in a small report, and some of this could have been inexperienced dealing with personality disorders. Now, the point of this article was to express some of the difficulties that counseling centers have in dealing with disorders like personality disorders. And I think the article really achieved its goal. I think it was a good review of this case, and it really highlighted some of the challenges that college counseling centers have. For more content like this, check out Healthy Toxic, another podcast from Ars Longa Media, all about what makes or breaks relationships, including issues related to narcissism, narcissistic abuse, and how personality disorders affect relationships. Ars Longa, Vita Brevitz. Learn more at ArsLonga.media. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife Maggie and son Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page.